Hello and welcome to episode 227 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Vienna, Virginia is Ben Olson. How you doing, Ben? Doing great. Awesome. We have a guest with us today. Uh, where exactly are you? We've got Professor Ben Barton with us. Uh, ben, where are you? Beautiful Knoxville, Tennessee. Knoxville, Tennessee. Nice. How's the weather in Knoxville today? Sunny and 50 degrees. Oh, beautiful. And I, I have a reason to be very pro-Knoxville. Do you want to hear why? Sure. My wife was elected mayor of Knoxville just this fall. Wow. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm the first gentleman. <laughs> Excellent. Is this, uh, she had a previous political career before that, I imagine. She did, yeah. She was on the school board for 10 years, and she's just a badass. Wow. Awesome. Ben Barton is professor of law at the University of Tennessee and the author of Rebooting Justice, Glass Half Full, The Decline and Rebirth of the Legal Profession, uh, also the lawyer judge bias in American courts. Um, he's here today to talk about his new book, Fixing Law Schools from Collapse to the Trump Bump and Beyond. We'll get into that interview in just a second. I'm, I'm actually super excited about it, Ben. You sent me the book Saturday morning, and I managed to read 200 pages of it in the last two days. Oh, nice. Yeah, I, it, it's, it's great. And I really hope our listeners will uh, pick themselves up a copy, because I think it's critical uh, <laughs> that future law students know what they're getting themselves into. But uh, let me just give some quick announcements. Um, this show is going to air on Monday, January 13th. That is the exact day of the January LSAT. So I um, hope everybody um, that took the test did well. The next chance to take the LSAT is February 22nd, but the registration deadline already passed for that. Um, so your next chance to register for an LSAT is for the Monday, March 30th LSAT, and the deadline to register for that is February 11th. Which is a Tuesday. Which is a Tuesday. <laughs> ben loves to talk about how the registration <laughs> deadlines are always on Tuesdays. Uh, ben Barton, if you could share any light on why the registration deadline is always on a Tuesday, that would be helpful. I am definitely not in charge of that. Okay. <laughs> um, you can email the show anytime, help at thinkinglsat.com. If you do so and you want to plaster your face on our website and our social media, you can uh, send us a selfie when you do that. All right. Let's, uh, let's dive, I guess, into this interview. Boy, I, I feel like we could do f four shows with you, Ben. I, I almost don't even really know where to start. You, you have uh, any ideas of where, how you'd like to kick it off? Yeah, well, let me just give the, like, the super thumbnail overview of the project. So if you know anything about American law schools, you know it's been a rough last decade. And the book starts there, basically. It details the collapse in applications and the problems in the job market and then the reaction of law schools and of applicants. It talks about why some of those things happened. Then it takes a hopeful turn to what we call the Trump bump, which is that there's now appears to be an up, uh, there is an upturn in the number of people taking the LSAT and applying. And then it argues that law schools have to learn a lot of lessons from the last 10 years. They can't just sort of brush off and move on as if nothing happened. So that's sort of the point of the book is to lay out the problems and then talk about some solutions. Yeah. Um, 
there are a lot of problems. We Ben and I both went to law school. I graduated from law school in 2011. So oh, sorry. Sort of, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I never practiced law. I, I started my LSAT business while I was in law school. And um, the LSAT business, at least from my perspective, has been fine. Um, yeah, I never practiced. Ben, wh- when did you graduate again? Uh, I don't remember. I think it was 2006. Okay, a little little bit earlier. And mm-hmm. uh, what about you, uh, Ben Barton? Uh, I graduated in 1996, so a while ago. Did you practice before becoming a law professor? I did, yeah. I clerked for a year on the Fourth Circuit for Diana Motts. And then uh, my wife was in grad school at Princeton, and I worked for two years at uh, Morgan Lewis and Bacchius in their Princeton office. And how did you make that transition into academia? So I worked there for two years, and then I did a national job search and got a visiting gig at Arizona State, and I did that for two years, and then I came to Tennessee permanently in 2001. What do you like better, practicing law or teaching law? So the funny thing is that for the first 13 years of my career, I was a clinical law professor. So that was a really nice hybrid. You know, the students go to court and represent indigent people, and there's a teaching component to it, and then there's a going to court with them component. Um, so I, I actually really liked all of those different jobs. The thing that was hardest for me about practice was when I was working at Morgan Lewis, it was before we had kids. And so I just worked all the time. Like I came in every weekend and worked. And honestly, I was like, that's fine. Like I, I didn't have that many hobbies. <laughs> like I really didn't mind. The work was interesting and I enjoyed it. Um, it was a small office of a big firm, so I ended up doing three different trials in two years, which is a really unusual experience, um, right. but fun for me. Um, but yeah, once we had kids, it was just I couldn't physically work that many hours anymore. Um, and so on balance, I've been really happy with the decision. Gotcha. To dive into this book, you want to give a little bit of the history of the collapse that that happened? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, listen, you're a 2011 grad. You know it better than anybody. So uh, the great, you know, what's now called the Great Recession, basically the biggest economic slowdown in America and in the world since the Great Depression starts in 2008. And so uh, naturally, employment results at law schools and at colleges and at business schools, all employment results get worse um, in 2008. So the first couple of years of the Great Recession, actually more people apply to law school. And that's pretty typical in a downturn um, because people who are in college think they're going to have a hard time getting a job or, in fact, are having a hard time getting a job. So they're like, "Ah, I'll just go to law school or I'll go to professional school. So the entering class of 09, 10, even into 11 is a pretty healthy and growing number. Uh, But each year, the job market stays bad. And you'll recall from 2011, that's a real nader year. 2011, 2012 are just awful, awful years for job placement. And basically, the press starts to pick up on this. And pretty soon, the worm is turned. And in the book, I've just got a flood of headlines. You know, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, all run, why would you go to law school, don't go to law school articles. 
And of course, the mainstream press is sort of the least relevant for the Generation Z, right? So there's a whole bunch of YouTube and social media campaigns to keep people from going to law school and sort of bringing light to the bad job, job stuff. So um, when you get bad press like that, uh, bad results happen, and so you get a collapse in the number of people who are taking the LSAT, and then a collapse in the number of people who are being uh, applying to law school. And even in this like 2012, 13, 14 era, you have almost open admissions. Almost everybody who applies to law school gets into a law school, um, but you still have just a massive collapse in the number of people who physically sign up and attend. So over that period of time, you have a loss in about 33% in the size of the first year class, which is a really, really substantial downturn. Um, and at the same time, you have much more significant discounting and um, schools competing over students. So you have a lot of lot more scholarship money given out. So you have fewer people coming who are spending less money and you don't have to be a math expert to know that's not good for revenue. So the schools are facing this collapse in attendance and a collapse in revenue, and there's an all-hands-on-deck emergency where they're just trying to balance the books in the short term. We've talked a lot about the boom in scholarships on this podcast over the years. Um, I was noticing in your book, you you talk about that a lot, and then you, you talk about the really perverse thing that happens with those scholarships where the top of the class, which tend to be more fortunate people end up getting the scholarships while the bottom of the class who tend to be less fortunate people end up borrowing all the money to pay for those scholarships. Yeah, it's a disaster. It's the reverse Robin hood <laughs> where should we steal from the poor to give to the rich? Yeah. And it's, um, it's because of us news and it's a thing that happens at almost every law school all the way up into maybe Yale, Harvard, and Stanford. Maybe you don't do this, but um, basically the, because the schools are competing on undergraduate GPA and on LSAT, they tend to use their scholarship money to try and draw the people who have the highest numbers within their cohort for that. Um, and just because of the nature of the LSAT and undergraduate GPA, those things, that tends to favor middle class, upper middle class, and wealthy people. Yeah, and whiter people, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. I should have been more explicit about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so can, does Tennessee specifically do anything to try to avoid that? I'm looking right now. Um, we look at ABA 509 reports all yeah, the time oh, on dude, the show. Totally. And I, hopefully you recommend that to your listeners. Like, that's the greatest. We never stopped talking about the 509 reports, although um, <laughs> I was laughing as I was reading your book because we've noticed with the 2019 509 reports that just came out, there's all sorts of discrepancies and errors on these reports. Yeah. Uh, and so I was wondering if that has something to do with the new sort of just lax you know, oversight because now that Trump's in office and it's sort of just like nobody gives a shit anymore. Uh, I don't know. Is that, is that, am I just being totally paranoid that that is what's going on with the, with the errors in the current 509 reports? Oh, listen, just cause you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no. So, uh, I'll say a couple of things. The first thing I'll say is insofar as the ABA reports are wrong, think about how bad the stuff they give to the U S news is. Like the ABA reports are physically required by a quasi-governmental entity that can take away their business license, basically. Right. 
and they're still faking a bunch of the information. And by they, I just mean some schools are still faking the information they send to them. Lord knows what these people send into U.S. news, which uh, at best can sort of ding you one year in the in the ratings. Um, as to whether it's purposeful, uh, I'll just go ahead and speculate and say not in every case, but yeah, in some cases for sure. Hmm. We've noticed some things that just seem like laziness where it'll have the living expenses for the school listed as the exact same amount to live on campus, off campus, or at home. And it'll, it's just like, well, that's not, (laughs) you can't possibly be doing any analysis at all. If you think it costs the exact same to live in those three places. Yeah. You know why I think that they do that? It's because the, um, under the current federal loan rules, you're allowed to borrow 100% of the living expenses. And so they just go ahead and, and name the largest figure they can that's going to get approved oh, by the Department of Education. And that way, people have flexibility in terms of what they're going to borrow. So uh, there's no interest f- – insofar as there's a school that doesn't care how much you borrow, and I'm super sad that those schools exist, but insofar as those schools exist – they have no interest whatsoever in quoting you a lower figure. They want you to, they're, they're like, go ahead and borrow it all. You know, borrow it as if you're living in a really nice apartment. So that you can, you know, live it up while you're in law school. Right. Uh, maybe you'll complain less while you're in law school if you do that, because you'll be living at a higher standard. Yeah. Oh, look at me. Maybe it'll help to convince all your friends that law school is a great idea. Because <laughs> you're living it up in this nice apartment while you're studying for three years. Right. And this is um, not, again, now, now I'm the one who's being paranoid. Again, I'm not saying that this is the case for most or even many law schools. But there are law schools that when you look at it, you can't help but think, like, this is almost just a student loan hustle. It really is. It's almost like, look, you borrow as much as, as you can for the living expenses and enjoy yourself. Like, like, come move to San Diego. It's nice here, not to pick on a particular town. Right. Um, and, you know, when, you're, when your parents or your parents' friends ask what you're doing, you can say you're in law school because it's true. You are in law school. And they'll be like, oh, I hear good things about law school. Um, don't pay attention to the graduation rate. Don't pay attention to the bar passage. Don't pay attention whether you're going to get a job or not. Like, it's just going to be a good three years. Um, and so, yeah, if they're, they're, I, in my opinion, there are schools that are running on that business model. And, yeah, that's not working out for those students at all. Well, even if you live, like, poorly and you don't live a high life while you're in law school, money is fungible. So you can take money that you would have spent on living expenses and now put it toward tuition. So the law schools get that because you were able to take out a larger loan based on these living expenses estimates. Yeah, right. But of course, money's fungible when you pay it back too. And that's a lot less fun. (laughs) I'm just saying, it's just like, it just seems like they're just doing it to make it easier for you to get a loan and easier for them to charge more. I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, and, and one of the things, and we're not, now we're sort of hopping around, and so tell me if you want me to not do that, but one of the things the book talks about is historically it was not true that you could borrow whatever it costed to go to law school. Historically, the federal loan program had a cap on it, and so when I graduated from law school, and actually I'd be curious, one of you guys graduated in 2003, 2006, yeah. 2006. Oh, so then you were at, you, there wasn't a cap on your loans, right? Uh, yeah, I don't, 
you would remember because it was really <laughs> it was a big deal. Like basically, the way it worked yeah. is there was a cap on it, and so when I got into law school, first I was thrilled. <laughs> But totally aside from that, uh, when I talked to the financial aid people, they were like, this is the amount you can borrow from the federal government, and um, this is the amount you're going to have to pay on top of that. And I was like, okay, great. Uh, but, and it was like, I don't know, another five, ten grand on top of it. And of course, it was a lot cheaper when I went, and it was cheaper in 2006, and it was even cheaper in 2011. But on top of the cap, they were like, you can borrow from a private bank to cover that. And I was like, oh, well, like, how does that work? And when they gave you the federal loans, and it's still the same thing, the federal loan application was like three pages long and not complicated at all. The private loan was not like that. The private loan was like really long, and they were like, in order to get a decent rate, you're pretty much going to have to have your parents sign up their house. And I was like, whoa, this is a disaster. So I physically, I lived the cheapest I possibly could, and I worked on my way through law school. I borrowed 100% from the federal loans, but nothing else on top of that. Um, and I'm not the only person that that happened to. It was like a natural break on lending because if you could make it out without private loans, you really tried hard to do that. So the way the stupid program was run, though, it wasn't indexed to inflation. So every year, tuition went up and the federal loan cap stayed the same. And so it was eventually pricing out poor people, lower middle class people and middle class people. And so Congress was like, well, this is bad. We, you know, going to graduate school is an engine of prosperity. We should just go ahead and make it so that people can go. And they physically took over the whole market. And then they made it so that you could borrow 100% of the cost of going to law school and living expenses. And of course, that's true for graduate school period. So that was true for business school and other things. And at the time they did it, they didn't do it to be mean. They did it because historically it's true Going to grad school has turned out to be a good deal. Historically, the repayment rates on those loans are really high. And just as a matter of public policy, they were like, oh, we should have as many people go to law school, business school, you know, nursing school as possible. That's going to work out great for the country and work out great for the students. Well, the worst version of it was in law schools, but it's been true in all of these higher ed things. When the government says you can borrow 100% of it, that's the reason why it outruns inflation every single year. There's no break on it. Um, and in terms of the students who are borrowing all of this, like it's sort of invisible to them when they borrow it. And it's hard for them to know that borrowing 150 grand is a lot worse than borrowing 100 grand, which is a lot worse than borrowing 50 grand. And so this sort of well-meaning change in public policy had this unloosing effect on tuition and in the book I go over, I mean, the tuition for law schools, it's the most despicable thing. It's so bad. The, the run-up in tuition and the run-up in debt levels over this terrible decade. I mean, you have a decade where job placement gets worse and worse and worse, although it's gotten better the last couple of years. You have a decade where it's the worst decade for law schools, really in measurable history. Um, and yet, Tuition outruns inflation every year, year after year, regardless. Like, can you imagine any other business where they, were, they show a 33% decline in demand for the product and they go ahead and raise the price every year above inflation? Like, it's just crazy. And the scholarship issue magnifies that, right? I'm, I'm looking at the 509 right now from, uh, from Tennessee. I noticed that you guys... Uh, first of all, you don't have conditional scholarships, which I think right. is a very good thing. Yes. But 
you know, you're you're giving. This is on. This is from the 2019 ABA report. Um, Tennessee is giving 71 percent of the class a discount. Yeah, which is pretty typical. I mean, the percentage that's lower than a lot of schools. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And that, like, uh, the book has got the chart for that. The only data that we have on that is the ABA data. So I can't remember. It starts 10, 11, or 11, 12. But the run-up in the percentage of students who get some kind of scholarship relief is just crazy. Yeah. So you're you're giving um, 23% of the class is getting less than half tuition. So that's sort of like a nominal discount. Yeah. You know, hey, we're going to give you 10 grand kind of thing. Yeah. When, when the tuition... Although, again, it's super funny to hear that. It is true that 10 grand in the full cost of a legal education is not that much. But I'm an actual working person, and you guys are too. I like 10 yeah. grand. 10 grand is not nothing. You know what no, I mean? it's not nothing. It's just not nothing when you compare it. Oh to, no, no, I know, uh, I know. I'm not like I'm not trying to brag about kind of or anything. Right? I'm just saying yeah. like one thing that's really important um, and that's very, very hard for the people who are listening to this podcast is just just keep the actual money figures in mind as actual amounts of money because they really are. Like yeah. <laughs> ten grand less borrowing means that you get to buy a used car. Like there's an actual thing that's associated with that money. Yeah. Imagine what that would look like in cash. Right. No, for sure. Yeah. And like, uh, we'll go back to your thing in a second. But one, like, one of the things I cover in the book is people are always, or not people. I've heard some people push back on me, and they're like, "Well, the people who go to law school are adults." And if no, they wanna, they're not. I know, but this is what they say. And if they want to <laughs> borrow all that money, it's a market economy, and and they can basically learn the meaning of the word caveat emptor before they get to law school. Um, and first, that's like, as a matter of law school management, that's completely unacceptable, and I'm out on that. Um, but totally aside from that, like, you have to recognize who you're dealing with. Um, and when I uh, applied for law school and started borrowing the money, uh, so I had good luck, and I took two years off before I went to law school. And so I had maybe four or five grand in the bank when I went to law school, which, <laughs> given the jobs I had, was a lot of money that was really hard to save, Right. So I, of anybody, knew what it meant to borrow $90,000, $120,000 to go to law school, which is what I ended up doing. And, and it was an unimaginable amount of money. That was like uh, three quarters of the value of my parents' house. Like It was like more money than I could imagine earning, let alone eventually paying back. So why did I do it? Um, because everybody told me it was a good deal and everybody else did it. Like That's just sort of how humans work. It's comparative. Um, so if the school is like, yeah, this is what everybody borrows to go, then you just go ahead and, and borrow it. In the book I talk about, it's a little bit like uh, you have um, this funny old story about the Eskimos. And it's not 100% clear whether it's true or not. But um, in some primitive societies, they don't count much beyond 15 or 20. They have a word for every number up to 20. And then after 20, it's many. And the reason why is in these primitive societies, it's like, why would you need to know the difference between 20 and 25 elk or 20 and 25 seals? Like above 20, you just have a lot of them and that's fine. Like that's all you need to know. And that's what the borrowing is like. <laughs> it's like 50,000, 100,000, 150, 200,000. That's all many to me. <laughs> like I've never seen that amount of money. I can't imagine paying it back. So yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I completely. I it's that's that's just absurd that people are making that argument that oh they should know what they're getting themselves into. I mean that doesn't mean it's right to do that. No, of course not. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> it's like the argument for the lottery that it's a tax on poor a tax on stupid people. Right. Well, that doesn't mean it's right. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's certainly not a very likable case for higher ed. No, no, no. Um, so, okay, so let me just go through these numbers real quick and, and just think about what this looks like. And this, because this is, this is a very, this is actually, this is, Tennessee is looking like a school on the, definitely on the uh, more admirable end of the way you guys are playing this game. Um, you're giving 23% of the class less than half tuition. You're giving 30% of the class half to full tuition. And then you're giving um, 18% of the class more than full tuition. Uh, do you know how big your stipend gets? Do you know how much of a stipend people can get at Tennessee? I honestly don't know the answer to that. Okay. We've and by the way, I haven't even, I, I should have, you should have told me you were going to do this. I have not looked at our 2019 509. So this is yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> no, no problem. Um, uh, all you got all you got to do is Google uh, Tennessee five hundred nine, and it'll pop right up. We we always give this PSA to our listeners. No, I love it, dude, and that's in the book too. That's my f- like when I'm giving the advice about uh, whether you should go to law school and how to choose a law school. The five hundred nines are key. Oh, great! I haven't gotten to that part yet, but I I will definitely check that out. So you know, we our tagline Ben on the show. We at the end of every single show, we say, "Don't pay for law school," and. And I like I really believe that that in the current the way it's currently set up, I'm advising every single one of my students not to pay in this current system. I think you just shouldn't pay because you don't have to pay because 18 percent of the class at Tennessee is not paying. And obviously, this would not be sustainable for the law schools if everyone took our advice the law schools would all go out of business because right. you can't just give everybody scholarships all the time. But because you have to try to stay afloat in the U.S. and News and World Report rankings, you know, you've got an LSAT, you've got a 159 uh, median LSAT and a 3.65 median undergraduate GPA. Those are pretty strong numbers. You know, I, what is the rank, uh, the U.S.? I mean, not that we care, but what is the U.S. News rank for Tennessee? We float between 55 and 75. I can't remember. I okay. think we're like 60 or some, somewhere in the 60s in the last one. Yeah. And there are a lot of schools in that, in that range, right? In the sort of oh, 20 yeah. to 100 range, law schools are fungible. Yeah. And so that's what we're just constantly yelling at our, at our listeners and our students that, hey, you know, if you were thinking about going to a school that was ranked 35th in the country, but they were going to charge you 50 grand, why would you do that when you could go to Tennessee and Tennessee will let you go for free? Yeah. Well, yeah, and in it's, particular... It's over 20, it's many, right? We don't... Oh, yeah, yeah no, for sure. Exactly. <laughs> well, but in, in particular, I would combine that, the advice that you just gave with the 509 employment results advice. Like, uh, wherever you're going to go to law school and at whatever level of the hierarchy you are in, before you go, you want to have a firm idea in your mind that there's at least some job that a lawyer does that you're going to want. Like, uh, if you are not, if you're just like, I think generally I might like being a lawyer or even worse, 
I'm people tell me I'm a good arguer or even worse than that. I kind of liked poli sci. Like there's never been a worse time to go to law school if you're one of those people than right now. Um, that being said, and in the book, I just go ahead and say with my outside voice and argue, if there's a particular job that you want to do and you know, like, and by no, I mean like you can actually think about my day as a lawyer consists of blank and I like it. It's an awesome time to go to law school. You know what I mean? Like the law is super complicated and it Im impacts almost every aspect of life in America. And if you're kind of a smart, hardworking hustler who actually wants to do that work, then you're going to be fine. Um, but, but that being said, in choosing between the schools, first, I totally agree. Never ignore price and borrowing. That's a really, really critical point that you all make. But also make sure that you're up on the employment outcomes. So, for example, if you're going to law school because you absolutely positively, bar none for sure, want to be an entertainment lawyer, well, it would behoove you to contact the law school and have them give you names of people who actually got that job, who graduated from that law school. Um, and the 509 reports are really, really helpful on that. I mean, the 509 reports really break it down. Um, but even aside from the physical breakdown you can get online, the law school is required by the ABA. And so they go ahead and do it. They have a list of every graduate and the job they got. And so you should be able to call up a law school and say, I'm interested in doing X. Hook me up with someone who's doing X. If they tell you they can't, that's bad because they can, like they physically know who's, who has these jobs. Um, so yeah, so I would do, it's not only the price, it's also the outcomes. Does that make sense? Yeah, that I, does. Absolutely. The, the, the outcomes that you're talking about though, that data is not on the standard 509 report, right? Where can people find that? If you just do yeah. ABA 509 reports. Yeah, employment is not on that report. No, no, no it's, not, it's, not by the, it's not on the school report. Oh. But there's a separate website that's got all of the 509 reports. And then um, it's got like 10 different reports for 10 different areas. And one of the areas is job outcomes. And then it's got the schools listed and the outcomes. Do you know what people can Google to find that? I think I just Googled ABA 509 reports 2019. And Google gave me AB, a, a big page that says ABA required disclosures. But then yeah. Google even broke out. 509 required disclosures, bar passage outcomes, and employment outcomes. Yeah, employment yeah. outcomes is where you go. Ben, one of the things that we laugh about on the show is that they recently took the bar passage outcomes off of the 509 reports. The standard 509 report oh, right, does not, right. it used oh, to, no, but now sure. does not contain the bar passage. No, passages. dude, and you're not being paranoid about that at all. That was, The schools complained about that. You have to go to a special place to find that. <laughs> Uh, but oh that being God. said, like you can you can find it and you should find it. That's critical information. There's no yeah. It renders your your investment essentially useless, right? Like yeah. Oh no, Ben, you can do anything with a law degree. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that argument with people too. That was one of my favorites. Okay, so let's look. Um, this is good. This is new. Uh, so employment summary report, select school, Tennessee. 2019 generate report. Yeah, okay. So everybody should just be going to aba required disclosures.org. Yeah. That's where all this stuff lives. Totally. And and honestly, like you can make a list of 10, 20 schools that are like in your that you're just thinking of doing and just go there and poke around. Like the, the information, there's a lot. And, and um I'm very critical of the ABA in the book and just generally in life. But in terms of the data, they're 
awesome. The decision in 2011 to collect all this data and then just put it out there for free was super smart and really, really good. Okay. So, so the, that's, this is great. So the 2019 data is not populated yet. It's all just zeros, but we had, we do have employment summary for 2018 graduates. Yeah. Um, can we go through this with you just to, sure, just let's to do it. learn how this works? Awesome. Um, okay. So total graduates, 114. That's the number of people who walked across the stage in December or May. That's the actual, yeah. that's, that is counting everybody. Yep. Okay. We got 79 people employed, bar passage required. Yeah. So that's uh, 75% roughly. Yeah. We've got 15. And just pause right there. I would yeah. say um, for your listeners and when you're looking at these reports, that's the number that matters. It's full-time, long-time, bar required. The, but what about these JD Advantage jobs? The schools pitch those as if they're the equivalent. Um, and I'll say a couple of things about that. The first thing I'll say about that is I've been teaching at Tennessee since 2001, and I've been teaching law since 1999. Is it true that every single year there's more than one student who I've taught who's like, you know, I thought I would really like being a lawyer, but law school has taught me otherwise, and I'm going to go do blank instead. And those people have selected blank, they're into blank, and it turns out to be great for them? The short answer to that is yes. And I bet the listeners to this program will know somebody who has a JD, including you two guys, who yeah. seems to be enjoying their lives, not practicing law, and that encourages the students. They're like, oh yeah, so if I don't like being a lawyer, then... I can go, uh, like I've got a buddy from, I, I personally have a buddy from law school who is a writer, now editor for the Wall Street Journal. Um, and he got that because he went to law school and then practiced for a while and then got into it. Um, or I've got another buddy who's actually uh, the general manager of the Los Angeles Lakers, Rob Polinka. Um, so you, you, people push back on me and they're like, well, you know, Barack Obama doesn't practice law. Seems like he's enjoying himself. So I'm not saying it's impossible. It's definitely, definitely possible. That being said, the data shows that the bulk of the people who get these JD Advantage jobs are not super happy about it. Um, the after the JD thing, uh, there's this great study called After the JD, and they followed people five years, 10 years, 15 years, and I think they maybe quit at 15 years out. The people who had the equivalent of a JD Advantage job were the least satisfied with their work, the least satisfied with the decision to go to law school, and the most likely to be looking for other work. And if you pause mm. and think about it for a second, sure, there are some people who actively choose not to be lawyers and go out, but there are a lot of other people who can't get a JD required job and then get pushed into a job that they basically could have gotten or would have been at least qualified for before they went to law school. And that's just a super disappointing result. Most people go to law school because they want to be lawyers. Um, and that's especially true now that it's so expensive and you're borrowing so much money for it. So yeah, you may go to law school and decide not to be a lawyer and that might be fine for you, but just the bulk of the people who are in that category are not happy about it. How do they even determine the boundaries of that category? Oh, dude, that's, um, or, or I should restate. My understanding is that the school selects it. 
And so if you were to get a job in a, a corporate job in any level of anything, they would be like, oh, yeah, yeah definitely a, a JD helped with that. Like the, the non-JD required, non-JD advantaged jobs are like barista or plumber. I mean, they're really jobs where they couldn't even make a colorable claim that having a JD helped. Yeah, I was going to say manager at the Starbucks, probably JD sure. Advantage. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you have legal understanding of contracts, blah blah blah. I mean, and it's not a total lie. At law school is is a, a learning experience, but you didn't need it. I'm sure it's helpful. It's an advantage, but that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, except for then we go back to like Paul Campos's claim that it's actually a disadvantage <laughs> in certain cases. Oh, I, I wasn't familiar with that claim, but I, that's mean, in the, I could that's see in that. His book. Sure. It totally yeah. is. It's in, it's in Campos' book. What do you think about that? So um, I know Paul and I like him. Um, I will say that I endeavor to be data-based yes, <laughs> in my work. Yes, you do. I know. He's, he's a little bit more opinion-based. And I don't even mean that it, it, as, as how mean as it came out. But, um, but yeah. No, I don't think he has any data to support that suggestion anecdotally, are there people who are like law school grads or douches and I shouldn't talk to them? That's probably right. Um, whether there's <laughs> I don't know data. that that was even his, that's, that might be a little stronger than <laughs> that was. Well, don't you, well I, anyhow, I'm not trying to run him down. That was my, that was my read on his claim. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, my, my read on his claim was that he was basically saying, Hey, if you if you apply for let's just say it's a uh, you know some managerial position like let's say it's a good job and you really want it but they look at your resume and it's got JD on it that they the employer might think two things they might think one this is just a temporary job for you because you what you really want to do is be a lawyer right or two that you basically washed out of being a lawyer right and, and so, either one of those things could be true. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was speculating that some people in certain circumstances might leave the JD off of their resume on purpose when they were hiring, uh, when they were interviewing for a job, uh, just so that they wouldn't confuse the employer with, with that JD. Yeah. I mean, even if it ends up helping, as these law schools claim, the question then comes, well, okay, was it worth the cost? And I can't imagine that it ever would be for these no, jobs. No, for sure. And also remember for your listeners... Even if you go for free, it's very expensive to go to law school because time is not free. Yeah. You never get any more of it. You don't know how much of it you have. And totally aside from that, physically taking three years where you're not earning money, that's a a cost. Like that's money you would have had if you hadn't gone to law school. Yeah. And you're going to end up borrowing your rent and all other living expenses. Yeah, totally. Anyway. But even if you was a hundred percent stipend and a hundred percent free on tuition, that's still not free. Do you understand yeah, what I mean? Because it's like the you would have earned seventy five sure. grand a year or whatever you would have earned not going is money you don't have. Um, okay, I'll just continue down this form and see what we find. I'm looking at uh, employment type here. Um, looking at these jobs first, it breaks down law firm jobs. <laughs> And it's looking like, unless I'm wrong, there's just not a lot of big law jobs coming out of Tennessee. Is that right? Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Um, But yeah, here's what I'll say. For Tennessee and most of the schools in the Tennessee cohort, so basically strong regional flagship public schools or even strong regional private schools, the 
big firm jobs, you know, 150 lawyers, 200 lawyers or more is going to be a top 20%, a top 25% type thing, even in the best year, even in the best year. Um, and if you don't have to go far in the top 14 to see that outside of Yale, Harvard, Stanford, the bottom 50% of Georgetown doesn't get a job at a big firm. Like the big firm jobs are not what you should expect no matter what law school you go to pretty much. Yeah, the the numbers on this report are bearing that out. We've got six people with uh, that are working in firms of 101 to 250. We've got 10 people who are working in firms 250 to 500. We've got two people that are working in firms of 500 or more. So that's a total of 18 people. Yeah who are working in jobs of a hundred or more. And yeah, you're, that's like, that's about, it's about 15%, 15% or something somewhere around. Yeah. Which is, it matches the scholarship ratio, but it matches the full ride plus stipend ratio, by the way. Now, not that that's a hundred percent overlap, but it's, <laughs> it's not a zero. You get a full scholarship based on your incoming numbers. That means that you're likelier to do well in law school. But again, that's not a one-to-one connection for sure. Every single year in every law school in America, there's somebody who gets a full ride who, who finishes in the bottom half or the bottom quarter oh, sure. of the class. It's just statistics. Sure. And there's somebody who paid full price who totally, totally kills it and yeah. goes and you know is valedictorian or whatever. Yeah. But has anyone ever studied the I would I would be super interested in that data to to know what that you know, what that actually looks like, like how many people actually do cross those thresholds or what the overlap really is between people who don't pay anything and also get the best jobs. Yeah, you can work backwards, or I should spec- I should say, you can speculate backwards from the studies that the LSAT does. The LSAT does a study on how people do in their first year GPA and then how they do in their finishing up GPA in comparison to their LSAT. And they do a correlation study for it. And um, again, this is off the top of my head, but it's a slight correlation, but it's not a strong correlation, meaning it's not a lock. If you go into a law school with the highest LSAT in that school, there's a, you, have a much, you have a better chance of having the highest GPA in the school, but it's, there's, it's not a guarantee at all, not close. I would imagine that LSAT and undergraduate GPA are a better They're predictor. better, but still not that strong. Like, it depends what you mean by strong. Like in, the, in, in a sort of natural setting, it's moderately strong, but it's not like, uh, it's, it's not like a super strong lock. I think it's like 30%, 40% chance, something like that. Got it. Okay, and it doesn't look like you're doing a whole bunch of uh, <laughs> law school, university-funded positions. I'm no, I'm pretty sure we don't have any. Nice, and then it even shows where, uh, by state, um, where people end up working. Obviously, eighty, you know, by far, eighty-four people are working in the state of Tennessee. Then we got three in Georgia, three in Kentucky, uh, and that's basically it. And we're about eighty, eighty-five percent incoming Tennesseans, anyways. Um, right. So that makes sense. And also, like we've had really uh, the rise of Nashville has been great for us. That's been awesome. Like Nashville is just a much hotter job market and a place that a lot of people want to live. And, you know, we've got a crap ton of grads who are working there. And so that just helps us all the way around. How far is Knoxville from Nashville? Two and a half hours. Okay, cool. I've never been to Knoxville, but Nashville's awesome. I went through there recently. Yeah, 
Yeah, and basically, I mean, so it, we like uh, Knoxville's a lovely town, and it's got the university, and it's got Pilot Oil and Regal Cinema and some other stuff. But it's not a town that's going to support a law firm of two hundred people. Um, so we have some branch offices here of bigger law firms, but the the local firms are twenty five to fifty people. Um, so we'll get some corporate type jobs that don't show up as big law jobs on our form, if that makes sense. Okay. Uh, but, um, salary wise, I mean, those firms of 25 lawyers. Oh yeah. They're not paying are... under 80 grand a year to start. I can promise you that. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, boy, Ben, do you have questions? No, I mean, this is all interesting and sort of reaffirming as well. You're reaffirming of all of our speculations yeah. that we've been doing over the years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was reading this book and I was like, "Wow, it's as if someone just put data to all of my random bullshit speculations that I've been doing on the show forever." <laughs> it was it was definitely affirming. Yeah, that's hilarious. Um, I was really interested in the. Um, I hadn't ever th- read about. I, I knew nothing about the history of it the competing forces about the ABA's role and then now the Department of Education's role. Can you say anything about that? Yeah, for sure. Do you want me to go all the way back to the like apprenticeships and that stuff? The, the story we have of- tons of time. I mean, as much of a history as you want to give the listeners, I think that they would really appreciate it. Yeah, this part was one of my favorite parts of the book and super fun. So uh, I'll start at the end which is there's this weird question of why law schools are so academic-focused rather than practice-focused and whether law schools could do a better job of teaching people the practice of law. And that's basically been a criticism of law schools, it turns out, since 1880. Like, that's been a fixed criticism. And the, uh, the irony is that law schools are actually better at that now probably than they've ever been because of clinical legal education and externships and because of the ABA requirement. But still, there's this like puzzle at the heart of the modern law school, which is that's that's weird. Like, why don't they work harder on teaching the practice? And the lesson from the history is that that's not a mistake. It's a feature, and it's the central feature. It's like the the actual reason why this model of law schools won is because they were more academic than other models. So that's the, that's the end result of the story. But yeah, you go backwards. So uh, when we first become a country, the only way to become a lawyer is through apprenticeship. And so there's a pretty set number of years of apprenticeship, and then there's an oral bar exam, and different states have different requirements. Um, but that's pretty much set. Uh, you have the election of Andrew Jackson and the creation of what's called Jacksonian democracy, And actually, people who are fans or just watchers of the current Trump presidency will recognize that his closest analog is Andrew Jackson. Um, And he's super proud of that, too. Like, there's he moved a a portrait of Andrew Jackson into the Oval Office right behind him. And so Andrew Jackson was a, a populist and but even more than a populist, he hated the elites. Like, he just railed against the elites. And if you know anything about hating elites, that means the lawyers are the first and foremost people that are punching bags. And so during the period after his election up until the Civil War, there's just like an ongoing state-level and federal-level attack on lawyers. And by the time the Civil War comes, 
two-thirds of states have no formal entry requirements to become a member of the bar, and there's a bunch of states where a literate citizen can show up and represent whoever they want. So there's like this collapse in professionalism, the bar associations all quit, and there's this period where it looks like the practice of law may just be completely sort of democratized and washed away. So then the Industrial Revolution happens, the existing elite bar gets together and they're like, well, we got to change this. And they want to bring back um, admission standards and make it a more professional um, occupation again. And so the obvious thing to do there is to just reinstate apprenticeship, right? Like why would you were That was the rule that we had before. Just go ahead and do that. And there were some states that went ahead and just put back in the old apprenticeship requirements. But the elites of the bar at this point were basically like sort of college graduates, and it's all part of this Industrial Revolution thing. And so they actually didn't want to go back to apprenticeship. They wanted the science of law to be studied. And so that's where this university-based model, and it's actually sort of based on the German university model, kicks in. And they're sort of looking around for the best way to do it, and they settle in on the Harvard model. And the Harvard model... It's hilarious. It's like in 1880, the original model for law schools was set, and we've changed almost nothing <laughs> since then. Uh, so you read cases in case books, and you study the decisions of judges, and then you synthesize it, and that's the scientific study of law, and you use the Socratic method to question people in it. Um, and all of that was pretty innovative in 1880. So now you have this sort of Harvard model university base, and you have an apprenticeship model. But of course, because we're America and we run a capitalist society, you don't have to run the Harvard model, which is really expensive. And so you have this night school model that pops up. Um, and those are, these schools are sometimes called YMCA law schools or proprietary law schools. But basically, they're much shorter than the Harvard model. They're night school only. They don't have any real faculty. They just have adjuncts. And the reason they were called the YMCA law schools is they were frequently held in the YMCA. So if you've been to a basketball court at the YMCA, just picture a podium at the front with a judge who's there as an adjunct and then a bunch of folding chairs and students sitting out there receiving a lecture at 9 p.m. at night. And that's the model for the law school. As you can imagine, that was a little cheaper than going to Harvard. Um, yeah. And it was cheaper in time, and it was cheaper in money. And basically, those schools were to prepare you to take a written bar exam and in some ways to um, practice, but were basically just a really long, shorter, cheaper bar review course. Um, so by the time the 20s come, you have this like three-way battle. You have apprenticeship dying out, but you have a battle between the Harvard model, which is represented by then the AALS, the American Association of Law Schools. And these are all schools that have two or three years full-time required, full-time faculty, all the faculty does scholarship, basically that look the way current law schools in this cage match against the proprietary law schools, which are much cheaper, much easier to get into, and you're just flooding people into the bar. And as of the 20s, it's not clear at all who's going to win. And in fact, all of the growth in the market is in the proprietary schools in the 20s. Well, the 30s come, the Depression hits, and all of a sudden the bar regulators get serious. 
And they're like, well, we don't want to have an unlimited flow of people going to these cheap law schools and then entering the practice and competing. So this is just protectionism, right? That's what you're saying. Right? Oh, this is my personal opinion on it. What, so hold on. If you wanted to be generous about it, the state Supreme Courts that required everybody to go to ABA school would say, oh, you get a much higher quality education and we're going to get a higher quality group of men. Of course, it was all men then. And these people are going to be better trained and then they'll be better lawyers and then the country will be better. That's the nice version of the argument. To me, it's like, dude, it all happened right in the middle of the Depression. It's not complicated to figure out what's actually going on here, which is we need fewer lawyers and we need fewer lawyers quick. How can we do that? Oh, we'll require graduation from an ABA law school. I mean, in the, like uh, 15 years earlier in the 20s, some of these proprietary schools, you just had to have a high school degree. You had a high school degree, you come in and do a year, pass the bar, bang, you're out and practicing. Well, the, the ABA model, the Harvard model, everybody's got to have an undergraduate degree and then tack on another three years or the equivalent of full-time school. Um, so you can see it's much, much more expensive and much, much harder to, uh, to accomplish. So yeah, the, but then, so then you're like, oh, well, why don't we teach the practice of law? And the answer is, well, because being an academic study of law is how we won. That's how we beat apprenticeship. We convince them scientific study of law is better than actually learning how to practice from an apprenticeship. And that's how we beat the proprietary schools, too. The proprietary schools were much less academic. And so this focus on scholarship, the academic study of law, wasn't just sort of a side effect. It was the effect. It's how we got the model that we have. And that explains so much about the behavior of law schools ever since. Okay, so I keep going. I mean, I'm enjoying the story. <laughs> keep going. Help me out. Well, I mean, just what happened next? Like, so. Oh yeah. This- so so then so basically we uh, it's, it comes in in the 30s. State supreme courts take over the regulation of the practice of law, and by and large, they require graduation from an ABA accredited law school. And then I don't have the numbers in front of me, but between like 1935 and 1945, like 100, 200 law schools close, and they're all YMCA night schools. Like it's just proprietary schools that close. Because they could get ABA accreditation. Is that what it well, was? Well, right, if you're not ABA accredited, then you can't sit for the bar nationally. Like you can't mm-hmm. go to school in California and then sit for the bar in Illinois. Um, and then in a whole bunch of states, they just said you have to be at an ABA accredited law school to take the bar at all. And so that just drives the proprietary law schools either out of business or they bite the bullet and become ABA accredited law schools. So, for example, Brooklyn Law School was one of the biggest YMCA law schools in the country. Um, And when all of this stuff happened, they just went ahead and transitioned into becoming an ABA accredited law school. Now, you, you all will know, and I'm sure your listeners will know, too, California still allows some non ABA accredited grads to take the bar. Um, Knoxville, I mean, uh, Tennessee, the Nashville School of Law is an actual original YMCA law school. It was taught in the YMCA into the 1970s. Um, but that's a school where you can go and you can only take the Tennessee bar with it. Um, so basically, what's the downside to that? Well, you could become a lawyer in Tennessee, but then if you want to transfer out of Tennessee and become a lawyer in another state, you're going to be barred because you haven't graduated from an ABA accredited law school. So it's a massive advantage for the ABA accredited law schools. 
That's kind of crazy to me. It doesn't even matter how long you've practiced in Tennessee. I'm pretty sure that's right. I mean, I'm not looking at all the, the regulations for all 48 states, but I'm pretty sure that's right. Wow. I am wondering here. So it sounds, so I was just wondering like who pushed, who gave the ABA this, this authority? I mean, this is through legislation, right? No, On no, a no. State by state basis. No. The, um, state Supreme Courts all over the country took what they call an inherent power over the practice of law. And state oh. Supreme Courts are first and foremost, this is hilarious that you guys don't know this. No one knows this. State Supreme Courts are first and foremost in charge of lawyer regulation in, I mean, basically in all 50 states. There's some argument about California and Virginia and some other outliers, but by and large, state Supreme Courts control it all over the country. And in a bunch of states, they control it as a matter of state constitutional law. So they look at the state constitution and they say there are three branches of the state constitution. And one of the branches is the judicial branch. And it has what they call these inherent powers that come along with it. And one of them, they say, is the power to regulate lawyers. And so first, that means that if you wanted to get rid of them as the lawyer regulators, you'd have to amend the state constitution, which is not going to happen. Um, and second, it's funny because states, and bless their hearts, state Supreme Court justices are busy and have a real job as their day job. And you can imagine how much passion they bring to their night job of regulating law schools. This explains why when the ABA came to them and said, oh, listen, like we'll do the accreditation thing. Like we'll set all the rules for it. And you just say, that's what we need to do. And the state Supreme Courts are like, done and done. Sure, that sounds great. And that's how it gets flipped back to the ABA. Um, the thing to remember, and again, I said I had some pre- earlier light praise for the ABA, but they are a professional organization representing lawyers. Um, and if you think that they're in, their A job is to take care of the public, then in my opinion, you're deeply confused. <laughs> like their A job is to take care of lawyers and the legal profession. And so putting them in charge of law schools is a questionable move and likely to be helpful to both law schools and to lawyers and not necessarily to everybody else. Well, and maybe we should add that really their job is not to protect lawyers, it's to protect the elite. Oh yeah, totally. Among the lawyers, yes. right? Cuz if you're saying that the state courts were the ones who basically imposed these limitations, the state courts are being run by the lawyers who are at the top of their profession. Absolutely. That's a really so, really good point and that's what the, that's what the ABA is like. Um, yeah, so, and the regulation reflects that for sure. So, for example, mm-hmm. this is one of the reasons why the ABA's pitch of the Harvard model was so attractive. Just exactly as you said it, their pitch is to the state Supreme Court justices. And so they're yeah. saying to the state Supreme Court justices, hey, look, you're, you're the elite of the profession. Look at how smart and awesome you are. And, and, and what, what sorts of law schools did you go to? Oh, oh, you went to the very best law schools? Well, wouldn't it be better to have every law school look like Harvard? Wouldn't that be great? Imagine how great that would be. And for those folks, that's been their experience the whole time. And they're like, yes, that does sound great. Hmm. There's this really funny uh, Milton Friedman anecdote. And he's a, a sort of libertarian economist for the University of Chicago. And so if you don't like him, that's fine. Uh, but he always had it out for occupational regulation and in particular for lawyer regulation. So he tells this hilarious story where he's at the, and he's, he's at the Illinois Bar Association talking to them and he's saying that they should get rid of the regulation of lawyers. And he says, 
the way the lawyer regulation works and the way the entry to the bar works, it's as if you're saying to people, the only type of car you can buy is a Cadillac. You can't have a Ford or you can't have a GM. You can't have a cheaper car. The only car that's going to be available to you is the most expensive car. And he said that there was a sea of applause in the crowd. And someone said, exactly, <laughs> Cadillac lawyers. That's what we need. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's pretty funny. So wow. then, But then it doesn't quite add up. I mean, if the, if the ABA is really there to sort of represent the interests of the elite lawyers, then why aren't the standards higher? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so actually, this like this this is the Department of Ed part of the story. And basically, over the last thirty years, the ABA has gotten backwards and forwards with various different federal entities. So there's a series of antitrust cases against the ABA. And since the people who are listening to this aren't lawyers, basically, you're not allowed as an industry to sort of gather together and set prices or set entry standards, and it's not doesn't take a rocket scientist to say like, well, that does seem like what the ABA is doing. So there's a series of lawsuits and the ABA keeps winning against like individual law schools that don't get accredited sue. And the ABA says, well, the state Supreme Court's let us do it. And so they win. Well, I think it's in the 90s. The Department of Justice gets interested and they actually bring a lawsuit against the ABA saying you're really acting in an anti-competitive way. So this is a big deal for the ABA. The lawyers who work for the ABA and who represent them are super smart. And it's one thing to beat back the University of Massachusetts, not very good, unaccredited school of law. It's a totally different thing to try and beat back the federal government. So they recognize this. They go ahead and settle that case as quickly as they can. They actually breach a bunch of the terms of the settlement right away. But they get rid of that problem. But in the course of getting rid of that problem, they're like, well, we're really going to have to loosen up. And so you see this funny thing where the number of law schools that are being added up until the 1990s starts to taper off. And then after this antitrust suit, they're like, whatever. And they just start letting law schools in. Um, And there's an actual like pretty significant growth in the number of law schools after 2000. And that's part of the reason why. So they're living in fear over this period of time of an antitrust problem. So they're very lax in their enforcement, and they're very concerned about trying to enforce it. Well, then all of a sudden, now they have too many law schools and too many law students and too much debt, and the Department of Education, especially under Obama, starts sniffing around, and now they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because the Department of Education is telling them, look, you really need to pick up your enforcement you can't just green light whatever these schools are doing. Um, and so that now they whipsaw, and it's a like pretty significant change in direction. And that's why you see in the last f- you know, four years much more significant enforcement, changes in the rules to make it easier to enforce. And they've actually physically closed a couple of places, which I started writing this book four or five years ago. And there were huge swaths of the book where I was like, they'll never do it. They'll never close the law school. And they went ahead and did. I mean, they went ahead and like they physically closed Arizona Summit Law School. And basically, in the entire history of the ABA, they had never disaccredited a fully accredited law school until Arizona Summit and then some of the other schools that they've been sort of banging at ever since. So um, to their credit, they have stepped up enforcement not to their credit, they've done it because the DOE made, made them. And then what happened with Charlotte? Yeah, so 
Charlotte was not closed by the ABA. Charlotte was closed by the Obama Department of Education. And it's crazy what happened with them. Um, so Charlotte gets a letter from the ABA saying, we're putting you on probation. And by the way, from my point of view, rightfully so. Like Charlotte was a really, really bad predatory institution that was screwing its students, having to borrow as much money as they possibly could, and then not getting them jobs, and most of them were failing to bar. So it was a really, really bad situation. So the ABA puts them on probation, and the Department of Education gets this notice of probation and writes back to Charlotte and says, you're on probation, so you're not in compliance with the ABA regulations, and in order to give out federal loans, you have to be in compliance, no more federal loans for you. And by the way, they do this in December of 16, after Trump has won, and they just cut them off for federal loans. And this shows you how dependent some law schools are on federal loans. They almost went out of business that day because all of their revenue basically came from federal loans or the great significant bulk of it. And so at first it looks like they're going to fold, but then they see that Trump's coming in and they expect a, a friendlier treatment. So they decide to hang in there. They actually do eventually get the money for that semester from the Department of Education. But at that point, the damage is done. Like two-thirds of the students are gone. And then what ends up happening is North Carolina physically closes it. The North Carolina higher ed regulator says, you can't run a law school anymore, and they just gave up the ghost. Um, so that started with ABA probation, but that's not an example of the ABA closing a law school. It was when the DOE wouldn't let them borrow the federal funds that they basically collapsed. Which eventually seems like the thing that has to happen. Right, but this is what's so funny. And one of the reasons this is the irony of the Trump bump is if you know anybody who works at a law school, like the, the federal data on donations to candidates shows that it's like 98% of the people who work in law schools either don't donate or donate to Democrats. Like oh, there's almost no Republicans who work in a law school. And yet the election of Trump has caused an uptick in applications, the Trump bump, and has gotten the DOE completely off of the back of law schools. It's been like an unwitting boon to all these people who hate Donald Trump. Super funny. <laughs> that is interesting. Wait, so are there like market-based ways to regulate these law schools? The reason I ask is because it sounds like with the fox guarding the hen house here, the ABA trying to regulate these schools and on the one hand, you know, limit them because it helps protect this elite profession. And on the other hand, not limit them because uh, the, the Department of Education is coming down on them. Like, it just seems like they're acting out of response to random forces as opposed to ones that actually connect back to, like, outcomes. So I feel like transparency would be helpful, but are there other ways to just let these law schools kind of come into being or die based on... I don't know, a more informed consumer base or something? I don't know. I mean, I'm not optimistic about that, but... Yeah, so the first thing is that, like, yeah, the sunshine to it is really helpful, um, but, but y'all 
know your listeners. I'm sure there are people who physically listen to this podcast and are interested consumers who have not done the work to figure out whether it's a good deal or a bad deal to go to the particular law school they may go to. Yeah. Um, but completely aside from that, um, I really, really think the loan situation has to change. You can't yeah. let the law schools charge whatever they want and have the federal government pay for it and not and not put any limit on it because that's just a, an invitation to keep raising the tuition year after year after year. Um, so I think that that will eventually be part of the solution. And um, I can't remember. Uh, so I'm sad that I'm not saying who, who suggested this, but somebody suggested that what we should do is just bring back the old cats. And, uh, and if you brought back the old caps, it would be such a financial meltdown for law schools. And 75 law schools would close within five years. Like they just couldn't possibly make it even on what used to be the amount that you were allowed to borrow. Um, and basically, if you think about it, the, the reason why is if the federal government only pays part of the tuition, a private lender is not going to lend you money without collateral to go to the 100th best law school in America. They're just not. That's a terrible, terrible bet for a private lender. Um, so those people are either not going to be able to go or they're going to have to put their parents' house up or find collateral or do something else. And that would be a massive gargantuan break on the tuition and on the borrowing. But wait, isn't that sort of a market-based solution? Because yeah, that's what I'm Because you're pushing saying. it out. Totally. The problem, yeah. that, that the reason when people are like, oh, the market will take care of it, this is like one of the most government-supported markets in America, and it's not market-based at all. Like the, the competitive forces here are not working. Mm -hmm. In the book, I've got this really crazy list, and the list is the 20 schools where students borrow the most amount of money to go to the schools. And the list includes like 11, or maybe it's like 12 of the top 14 schools, it's all the very best schools, the most expensive schools. And you're like, well, that would make sense. Like, and, and by the way, as far as I'm concerned, the actual cost is the amount of debt. Most of this money is being borrowed. So if you want to find out, and because of the discounting and everything else, if you actually want to find out how much it goes to a, cost to go to a law school, look at their debt numbers. So a big part of the list are these most expensive best schools. And I've got a whole argument about what a bad thing that is. But regardless, that at least makes sense, right? These are the most prestigious, the ones that are perceived in the market to be the best. In a mark functioning market economy, you would expect them to be the most expensive. Mm -hmm. Almost the entire rest of the list are among the worst law schools in America. All of them are these non-ranked by U.S. news schools. And they're borrowing amounts that are just right there with the T14 amounts. And that alone tells you what a mess this market is. Like, can, yeah. if you count that as the price, that would be as if a Tesla and a Toyota Tercel are the same price. Like, it's crazy. Um, and the reason why that's happening is because of the guaranteed loans and predatory behavior by those law schools. It feels like we should have like the caps with that are higher than before, but at least something. Yeah, maybe no, for sure. tied to standard of living increases, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, that's my that's that's among my uh, preferred solutions. Totally. It sounds like they got rid of the caps in the first place to pursue diversity, right? No, it was more like well, I mean, uh, economic diversity. Yeah, the original point was, and it, it's true. 
the caps will have a negative effect on people, on lower income people, and make it harder for them, to, for some of them to go to law school. And so on the one hand, the people have pushed back to me. And, and, and by the way, lower income also tends to track with race. So um, people push back at me and they're like, look at how bad this is going to be for African-Americans, for Latinos. We're finally seeing a more diverse group of law students coming in. Shouldn't you celebrate that instead of criticizing that? And I have a crisp retort to that, which is that I'm super pro-diversity and I have no beef with that whatsoever, except insofar as you're sending these people to schools that look like the Charlotte Law School, where they're borrowing 150, 200 grand to go to a school where they're unlikely to graduate from, and if they graduate from it, they're unlikely to pass the bar, and even if they pass the bar, they're unlikely to get a job. That's the exact worst version of growth and diversity. You're just like punishing those students. And that should not be, that's not something to celebrate. And in the book, I've got a whole thing where I show it is true that the percentage of students coming in has grown more diverse. But then when you dig deeper on that cohort of students, they're graduating, they're much less likely to graduate, and then they have a harder time uh, passing the bar, and then they have a harder time getting a job. And some of it's not their fault. It's because they've been let into a school where they were not set up to succeed. In fact, it was very likely that they were going to fail, and the school didn't care and said, give us 200 grand, and we'll call it even. And the federal government gave them the 200 grand, but then the poor student is the one who's saddled with paying back this non-dischargeable debt. Like, it's just a really perverse result, and it's a totally twisted version of seeking diversity. I am super pro diversity, but not on the backs of these students who are being saddled with all this debt and not making it. Yeah, they're not, they're not getting an actual Cadillac. They're getting a fake Cadillac. Oh, like yeah. all the law schools follow this Harvard model, but the outcomes are not the same as the Harvard outcome. They charge Harvard prices, but they just don't have the Harvard outcomes at all. For sure. Absolutely. Well, it almost sounds like they're saying, hey, the solution is to give them access to capital, but the problem runs deeper than that, right? They need access to education maybe earlier on or something. I don't, I don't know, but it's like they're not set up to, like giving them access to that education and all that debt is not helping. <laughs> yeah, no. And in the book I talk, so um, this is really interesting branch of behavioral economics where they talk about the motivations and behavior of impoverished people. And it's not just impoverished people in the U.S., it's impoverished people all over the world. And it turns out that if you grow up in poverty and or in a more dangerous setting, and frequently those two things go together, you just have a really different flavor for risk than you do if you grow up as a middle-class person. So, for example, the lottery is a perfect example of that. Middle-class people are like, well, the odds are that you're not going to win. That seems like a really stupid risk. Why would you do that? Um, layaway is like that. Title loans are like that. Payday loans are like that. There's like this whole shadow economy that's set up to prey on the different like desire for risk. Um, so, for example, if you grew up in a lower-income person in the U.S., um, and frequently that would mean that you're a person of color, and frequently that would mean you grew up in a neighborhood that had higher crime and was more dangerous and you knew fewer people who became successful professionals and more people who ended up dying young or going to jail, your taste for risk would be totally different. So, for example, if they told you 
you can come to blank un you know unranked school and you've got a 20% chance of graduating passing the bar and getting a middle class job you would be like wow those odds sound really good <laughs> really like i've got a 2 in 10 chance of doing that because many of my other options don't look anywhere near as good as that Whereas mm-hmm. for a middle-class person or upper middle-class person, you're like, those odds sound terrible. Really? Like I have an 80% chance of, of borrowing 200 grand and getting nothing good out of it. Um, so you, there's like this different appetite for risk. Um, and then there's, but there's a, then there's a predatory way of taking advantage of that. And that's the thing that's crazy. I mean, there are law schools that look more like payday lending than like a higher education enterprise. Like they look like they're actually out there trying to confuse people into giving them, borrowing the money. Wow. Grim, I know. I apologize. (laughs) I haven't gotten uh, into the latter third of the book or quarter of the book yet, but uh, is there a a light at the end of the tunnel? Um, So the light at the end of the tunnel is, from the law school point of view, there are physically more people applying and more people willing to come. Um, and so law schools that were on death watch or were in danger of really, really closing seem to be likely to be in slightly better stead going forward. Um, but again, the book argues, and I feel really strongly, we can't just go back to business as usual. You really, really have to learn the lessons of what led us into the crisis in the first place, or you're just asking for it to recur. Um, and the first thing, the number one thing, the suggestion that I always, always make sure to mention is it's can't keep getting more expensive than inflation. It's got to get cheaper and the loan amounts have to get less too. Like you just cannot keep saddling students with this debt. Um, what goes on, what can't go on forever will not go on forever. And um the more it continues in this vein, the uglier it's going to be for law schools when the correction eventually comes. The federal government is not going to keep underwriting this for time infinitum. Like, and there's already a bunch of people who are agitating to change it. And so you really want to do that from a position of strength, not from a position of having it imposed from the outside. Should, uh, should people go to law school? Yeah, so I, I, I told you I've got a whole bunch of advice in the book on that. I've got a whole chapter on that. Um, and I think I said it, but I'll just say it again. Um, people should not go to law school without a clear idea of what a lawyer does and that they're going to like it. Um, if you have a clear idea of what a lawyer does and that you're going to like it, yeah, definitely go. It's an awesome time. And partially for the reason you said, this is a lot of competition over students. You can go to a very good law school and get a significant discount and then go out and do the job that you're hoping to do and enjoy it. I can tell you, I really like being a lawyer, and I still do a bunch of legal practice. There are really not very many jobs that include a combination of rigorous intellectual work, lots and lots of reading and writing, and then lots and lots of interaction with people and study of people. Like, if you're a people person and you think people are really interesting, then you might like being a lawyer. It's also, and the book just touches on this, but some of my earlier work is about this. We're in a big time in transition in what legal practice looks like. Like the people who are listening to this podcast, their parents could go to law school because they were a confused history major and then just go out and hang a shingle and then just bump into a middle class life. 
that's not the case for us now. That being said, it's like a time of royal. And so in times of royal, there are like fewer gatekeepers and more room for hustlers. So if you're kind of a hustler, if you're into competition and hustling for work, then this is another good time to go to law school. Ben, any final questions before we wrap it up? No, I think we've always said, don't go to law school unless you know you want to. And if you really want to, don't pay for law school. And if you really want to or can somehow pay for law school, make sure (laughs) you're going to the best one you possibly can be going to. And again, remember what the word best means there. That does not mean by rankings. I can't emphasize that enough. And I know y'all agree with me. Like the difference, like as a matter of statistics, the numerical difference between the 30th best law law school and 45th and 65th is really not very much. Like they're really, really bunched together in there. And and especially like don't choose the 35th over the 40th. That's just a really silly way to choose it. Yeah, yeah. we're going to call that many from now on. Right. The way to choose (laughs) that is the the way to, to figure out best is to start at first principles. What is, what is it that you, applicant, want to do? What is it that you are hoping to get out of this experience? And then there's all this rich data for you to explore to make sure that the school that you're going to is likely to present you with that opportunity. Um, and then this goes along with that, but remember I said at almost every school if, you, if what you want to do is make a lot of money and go work at a big firm, that's not guaranteed to the graduates of even just a handful of schools. Like you don't even have to get to a second hand before that's not guaranteed to you for going to law school. So make sure that you're going to feel comfortable doing more than one job. So for example, if you're like, I'm passionate about the environment and I just need to go work for uh, environmental nonprofit suing chemical companies, that's awesome. That's a really hard job to get. And if that's literally the only job that you want out of going out of law school, then you should either go to a law school where everybody there gets to have that job. And by the way, there aren't any of those law schools. Or you should feel comfortable with the idea, or I could be a public defender and I would like that too. Um, or I would be a district attorney and like that too. But you know, find something that's a fallback that you're going to feel comfortable with because none of this stuff, especially this sort of most desired thought from the outside to be the coolest jobs. None of those jobs are guaranteed really at any law school. Yeah. I mean, these are all very good points. I would say that most people, almost everyone should try to not pay on some level um, so that they can mitigate those risks. Totally. Agreed. Uh, Yeah. Well, I don't have any other more questions at this time. I, I think this has been immensely beneficial for me for us, and I hope all our listeners are paying attention and taking away something from this. I loved the history, too. I mean, this is just fascinating to see how all this works together uh, to help some people and really hurt other people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're going to love the book, Ben, when it comes out. Um, For the listeners, the book is called Fixing Law Schools from collapse to the Trump bump and beyond. I guess that's already for sale on Amazon. It is totally. Yeah. It's the, the electronic one hasn't come out yet, but the physical one is out. Yeah. Cool. Are you going to make an audio book of that by chance? (laughs) No current plans, but uh, (laughs) when when my schedule frees up, that's how I consume most of my content. I just, uh, drive and listen. So, but 
I'm yeah, I'm excited to see this book. So thank you. Amazing. Um, where, where do people find out more about you, Ben? Do you have social media or is there, there some way that they can go find you? Oh yeah. I mean, the best way is just my university of Tennessee website. That's it. University of Tennessee website. We'll find that page and Indeed. we will link to it in the show notes. Um, Ben Barton is professor of law at the University of Tennessee, and the latest book, again, is called Fixing Law Schools from Collapse to the Trump Bump and Beyond. I love it. I fully endorse it. We're going to have to stop talking about the Campos book because I feel like this just completely um, replaces it with, uh, like, it's got all the data to back up the arguments. So thanks a lot uh, for coming on the show, Ben. No, thank you all. I really appreciate it. You can join the Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook if you like. We are at Thinking LSAT on Instagram and Twitter. Visit strategyprep.com and foxlsat.com to learn about all of our services, including uh, Ben's live classes in D.C. and my live classes in L.A. and San Francisco. we got all sorts of online and one-on-one options. Um, LSATdemon.com is our joint online project. It's all you need for LSAT prep. It's a full LSAT course, LSATdemon.com. It has a seven-day free trial. That was episode 227 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks, all y'all, for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.